Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Andrew Warner, producer of the Long Now Talks at the Interval. One of our guiding principles here at Long Now is that in order to get to a future that we want to live in, we must first be able to imagine it. Unfortunately, it turns out it's much easier to imagine a dystopia than a thriving civilization. Joining us today are Becky Chambers and Annalie Newitz, two of the most compelling authors working in science fiction today. In their writing, which ranges from novels and short stories to history and journalism, they try to imagine worlds that we might actually want to live in. Worlds that are hopeful. Worlds that are full of non-human persons and a pervading sense of peace. Before we hear their conversation, a quick note. All of the Long Now Foundation support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Without further ado, let's hear from Becky Chambers and Annalie Newitz on Resisting Dystopia. Well, hello. Thanks so much for coming out. <laughs> and um, so let's just get right down to it and uh, talk about dystopia a little bit. But first, I'm going to have some water. It's very important to hydrate before yeah. whoever save the world as we're going to do. Yeah, exactly. And water is, I think, part of a world that we want to live in. For us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> for humans, you know, we're mostly water. So when we were coming up with the idea for this conversation, um, we really, we both knew immediately that we wanted to talk about this idea of resisting dystopia, um, both in the real world context, but also in fiction. Um, and so I want to start by asking you about what it what do you think dystopia is and what does it mean to be resisting it? Like, what is this thing that we're talking about that we want to push back on? So uh, the very easy question of how to define dystopia. <laughs> uh, dystopia is a world that is fundamentally broken. Uh, it is a world in which um, compassion is thin on the ground. It's a world in which no one wants to live. And in fact, it's quite difficult to do so. Um, it's a place in which survival is the only end uh, that you really have the ability to fight for. Um, resisting it. Resisting it does not mean uh, we're just going to tell a story about somewhere else. We're just going to close our eyes and stick our fingers in our ears and uh, focus on, you know, the most rose-colored glasses version of this instead. Resistance is action resistance is struggle resistance is a fight so if you are going to resist dystopia resist um oppression resist fascism any of these things that are very much part of the world as we live in now um it requires effort and it requires honesty uh and a lot of other traits that we're going to talk about in the next 58 minutes or so <laughs> I wanted to add to that that um, one of the things about dystopia is that uh, it is a real world phenomenon. It's something that we associate with fascism and oppression and closed regimes, but it's also a type of storytelling. 
And, you know, as science fiction writers, we are immersed in a world where people often tell us that dystopian writing is the most realistic kind of writing. And that if we want to uh, tell a story that is going to help our readers, our audiences grapple with what's going on in the real world, we need to tell them a dark, fucked up story where everyone dies and the world is ashes at the end. Um, I once went to a hacker conference where people were talking a lot about the grim meat hook future. And um, that's basically, you know, I think held up as this ideal in, in narrative. And so I think part of resisting dystopia isn't just the hard work of politically resisting in the real world, but also resisting the urge to turn our stories about the future into these very one note uh, non-nuanced visions of where humanity and our world could go. So that's another piece of what we're resisting in our work, I think. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the real world and fiction go hand in hand. They are <laughs> they are um, an Ouroboros. Um, I have a real bone to pick with um, this thing that is, it is very common in the here and now and not just in um, science fiction and fantasy, but in storytelling as a whole right now um this idea that that cynicism equals sophistication right that if we're going to tell stories to adults for adults that it has to be the grim meat hook future um <laughs> that this is inevitable somehow i think that that is uh just profoundly wrong it's profoundly wrong on every level because um you're 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 creating this self-fulfilling prophecy you're saying that hope is something that belongs to children, that joy is something that belongs to children. And if that's the case, what are we fighting for? Like, what's the point? You know, I, I really think that just breeds nihilism. If the only stories we are telling about the future, even if it is in a fictional context, if the only places we are imagining and escaping to are places in which the grimmest possibility is the only outcome, what do we have to hope for? What do we have to live for? You know, and so that's where I think I'm biased, of course, but why I think it's important um, not to say that those kinds of stories don't have value. Sometimes in order to confront um, things that are horrifying, things that um, are real and scary and damaging, we do need to lean in to that. You just need to sometimes grab it by the collar and look at it in the face uh, as hard as you can. But if you don't have a counterpoint to that, um, I think it just starts to poison you after a while, which is, you know, sugar does too. If all you had was, <laughs> if all you had was hopeful stories, if all you had was, and everything works out and they all lived happily ever after, that's not going to help you out either. But I think, you know, the, the, the basis of a nutritious fictional meal is to have, um, <laughs> I didn't mean to keep continuing with this metaphor, but here we are. Uh, but, it, you know, to have a healthy, balanced ecosystem of storytelling, you've got to have the other side as well. Yeah, I'm still really disappointed about the whole thing where you can't just eat sugar all the time. So, you know, thanks for <laughs> bringing it down. Um, but I think, I mean, to continue with what um, Becky's saying, I think what's really important, I think for both of us in our fiction is avoiding a binary where there's either dystopia or utopia. Because I think that's the other trap that we get into as storytellers, not just as fictional storytellers, but also as people who are trying to innovate or people who are trying to you know, write nonfiction about the future, um, is that we're sort of told, okay, it's either going to be all sugar 
um, or it's just going to be this realistic, grim future. And the fact is that the future is going to be just as messy and nuanced as the present. You know, there's going to be people doing really cool stuff. There's going to be people trying to kill the people who are doing the cool stuff. And there's going to be everything in between, right? There's going to be mixed spaces where lots of those people come together. And so I often tell people that I'm a topian writer, which means I'm just writing about a place like now. Um, and, you know, one of the, the things about dystopian writing, and for a minute I want to pick on a specific example, uh, because a lot of people have been uh, revisiting The Handmaid's Tale um, for obvious reasons, um, not just the television show, but also real-world politics. And um, one of the things that Margaret Atwood has said about that book is that she sees it as realistic because every single thing in it has happened at some point in history, which is actually unrealistic because there's no point in history when every single bad thing ever happened all at once. Um, and I'm not, and this is not to pick on on that book. I mean, it's a fantastic book. It's an incredibly useful allegory for us to think about what's happening to um, women's bodies and women's rights. Um, but in terms of what dystopia is, it reminds us that dystopia is an allegory. You know, it's just a fantasy or a fable. Um, it's not an actual real world um, scenario. And so that's the thing that, again, we're trying to avoid when we actually try to write a realistic future. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about these realistic futures that we're imagining that are more nuanced um, and that are kind of a reaction against um, dystopia. And so um, one thing that both of us are really interested in, and I want to toss this to you to talk about first, is um, having a really um, a canvas, a, a temporal canvas that's very broad, like writing across a huge span of time, which here we are at the long now, which is devoted to that idea. So what is it about having that broad time frame that you think lends itself to a more nuanced vision of a, of a future world? I think it's very simple. Uh, I have, um, <laughs> in all things, I have a, uh, just an issue with protagonists. Um, <laughs> because we don't have any. Like, if you, if you really want to write something realistic, you don't have a protagonist. Now, granted, I have written things with a protagonist because with a novella, like, you only have so much space. Um, but... Uh, I think if you really want to paint a picture of a world where it is more cooperative, where there is more of a collective mindset, where nothing is perfect, but things are working at least better than here, um, it makes more sense in my mind to show that this is a collective effort over time and over, um, you know, often a large like geographical space or galactic space, depending on which books we're talking about um that you have multiple povs um which we both like to play with in our work um because it's not just one person's story there isn't going to be a savior a chosen one who pulls us out of this it, you know i i am very intentionally writing um to counter this idea of you know the the big genius that's going to save everybody i think the people that are going to save everybody are the very ordinary people doing very very small things um to help each other and to be kind and to be open to one another i think that that's the only thing that's going to push us forward is to have as much of that as possible so those those are the stories that i'm interested in telling um because yeah if if we're going to keep going the only way to do it is together. Try it as that sounds, but that's the we're we're a social species. We have to do that. 
Yeah. And I think that's another aspect of realism is acknowledging that we actually are a collective and social species and that it isn't going to be, you know, um, Paul Atreides who like, you know, does some drugs and like rides the worm. Right. I mean, it's like it, it, there, there's there's more involved. There's all the worm caretakers. There's all the people that are like, you know, back home maintaining the family. If the world could be saved by a special white boy doing drugs. <laughs> we would be there. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah, I think like one of the things that appeals to me about um, having a story that takes place over a very long period of time, like my most recent novel, The Terraformers, takes place over, you know, more than a thousand years. It's a multi-generational story, is that I think it allows us to um, dream a little bit beyond the confines of a single life. And one of the things that I think tempts us into this dystopian mindset is that we are actually trapped in a really short period of time. Um, we're, we're stuck with the time we're given, and sometimes the time is really shitty. Sometimes things start out seeming really great and get really shitty, and we never live to see things get better again. Um, but when you have a story that lets you see how one generation's rebellions or resistance gets passed on to the next generation and that generation does something new with it and resists oppressive authority in a new way, you're able in your imagination to understand how justice and how uh, positive social transformation can happen over this broader span of time. And I really think increasingly the older I get that one of the most valuable aspects of storytelling is allowing us to see that bigger canvas and to understand that our lives are connected to something much, much bigger, whether it's other people or our ancestors or the people who come after us. And especially as we're dealing with environmental disasters on the scale that we're looking at right now, we have to be thinking about those other people in the future and remembering that what we do now will can either be a gift to them or a giant turd for them. Um, or maybe the turd will be a gift because maybe it's like compost, you know, like maybe it'll be like the turd gift. I don't know. OK, anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is um, when I was reading the Terraformers and I realized, oh, we're going to be we're going to be jumping <laughs> yeah. to time. That was when I got really, really excited um, because that that's what the story is about that's what the story of um not not just your story but like the story the story of us um it's a hard truth that the better futures we are working toward hoping for wishing for might not belong to us that we might never see them that's it's a tricky thing but i actually find a very odd sort of comfort in it, I, I know that sounds weird, but I, I, I really do feel that just sort of accepting that I am not going to see that, you know, but that maybe some somebody down the road uh, will see the the fruits of our actions together. That gives me, it kind of takes the pressure off because otherwise you have this feeling of just like, I hate it here so much. I'm just going to kick my heels and, you know, like, I wish it wasn't like this. I want to get out of this. But if you just accept that history has always kind of sucked. <laughs> And the here and now also kind of sucks. Um, 
And that's just part of life. And life is still wonderful within that. I really, um, this is not a spoiler of your book. Don't worry, don't panic. But like, <laughs> there's a there's a very wonderful note um, at the end of their book. Like the, the last moments of the book are one that really talk to, speak to, you know, how the, the road ahead is going to be hard. But like, that's why it's important to appreciate this moment now. Yeah. And that's, that's what it is. That's what it's all about. And so if you can tell, to bring it back to storytelling, if you can tell a story in which you, show the small things not the big galactic victory necessarily those stories are awesome but like this the little things that the moment you have with somebody else the love you show for one other person that will never get written down anywhere that no one else will remember but that that those points in the long march of time of progress of you know two uh, one step forward two steps back those matter just as much as the big victory. And so that in when I see it in your writing, and I know I do it in my writing too, that focusing on the little beautiful things amidst the big story, the big setting, the the um the all-encompassing timeline that most of these people don't get to see. I think that's what it's all about. I think that's what's so fantastic about your robot and monk books, because they're they're exactly about those small moments. And, you know, you've in, we have these tea cups and teapot up here because the monk in these books, this tea monk, basically what they're doing is they're going around and having tea with people and having conversations. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about building that idea and how you see that fitting into this larger picture of building a huge world uh, that is better for us to live in. So uh, Dex, the character in question, uh, as mentioned, is a, is a traveling monk and they go about uh, dispensing tea and that's it. You can just sit and have a cup of tea. You can talk if you like. You can talk to other people or you can just sit. Um, Dex is a disciple of in this world. There are six gods uh, because I say so. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> the three, there's the parent gods and the and the the uh, child gods and so the child gods um they uh you've got a god that is essentially um art and science you've got one that is uh tools and machines constructs um dex's god alale is the god of small comforts and the reason this is such an important part of this world's religion this world's belief system uh the saying goes that um find the strength to do both do both being what to pursue truth uh, however you can, be that through art or science, um, and to invent tools that will help you along the way. You cannot do those things without rest. You cannot do those things without comfort. You cannot do those things without beauty. I wanted to create a world in which the smallest things are seen as something sacred, you know, whether it be a nap, a good meal, a hug from a friend, where those are actually you know, the, the, these, these venerable things, um, because they are, because they're everything, you know, um, I wanted to say that these are not the luxury that awaits you at the end of the day. These are not something that you have to earn. This is actually fuel. The moments we spend together, the, um, the time you take for yourself or give to others, that's fuel. That is how we do the hard work. Um, and so for me, a cup of tea was, the easiest stand-in for that. A cup of tea is nothing. This cup of tea is lovely, by the way. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, but it's not important, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's a cup of tea, right? Uh, 
And yet a cup of tea can change your whole day. A cup of tea that somebody hands you when you're sad or when you're sick or when you're just tired. A cup of tea that somebody makes for you as a surprise um, can change everything. It can change your whole outlook, you know. So it just seemed a, a natural fit to to make that part of their, um, not just their religious practice, but their entire life that they are devoted to this very simple thing that in the grand scheme seems like it doesn't matter, but it, it actually really does. Yeah, I really like that idea of elevating the notion of taking a rest and of taking a pause to the same level that you elevate innovation or that you elevate art and science. Because we live in a culture right now where productivity is so fetishized that the idea that something like a cup of tea would be held up as like something on par with like getting all your work done and filing all that code. Like this is a world where if someone is filing too much code, you know, if somebody is committing too much code, someone's going to come along and say like, you need to go rest. Like this is not healthy. It's not okay. And no one's expecting you to do this. This is not right. Um, and so I think that's part of building that balance, that sense of a world where, yeah, we can still have all the cool tech, but we also need to have these moments that are devoted to something else. Um, and that brings me to another thing that I think both of us have explored a lot in our work, which is um, breaking down a distinction between the natural and the technological. And I think a lot of um, science fiction thinks of technology is associated with progress and nature as associated with the past, unless it's some kind of synthetic nature and we're like, you know, doing genome splicing and, you know, CRISPR, Cas9, blah, blah, blah. That's okay, but that's also technological, right? Um, and both of us are really interested in um, thinking about uh, robot characters who are people, robots who love nature, um, how nature is really a part of, um, you know, the future, basically, and not just synthetic nature. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Like, why is why is nature and the environment so important for this for this pushing back against dystopia? Uh, for a start, because we need it to survive. That's it's a pretty yeah. important thing. Um, <laughs> but I, I, Monk and Robot was very much intended as a fuck the binary in a lot of different ways. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, this idea that nature, you know, as a as a concept and technology are polar opposites, that they are incompatible, that this is a zero sum game, is ridiculous. Um, technology is just tools it's it's tools we can use them for lots of different things we can use them for good or for bad or for neutral it's just tools um and we do not have to be using uh extractive modes of consumption to make said tools we do not have to be um deploying said tools in ways that are um lacking in compassion lacking in um you know a, a drive to build a better society like they Technology does not have to equal money. Do you know what I mean? Like the pursuit of technology does not have to be the bottom line, the new shiniest thing. It can be, let's build a better world together. And I don't think that you have to, uh, if you want to have a world in which you have a thriving ecosystem, in which you have, um, you know, 
a climate that is not collapsing all around you does not mean we have to, you know, have this sort of hair shirt future either where it's like, <laughs> okay, we're all gonna, you know, just uh, go back to hunting and gathering, not to like throw stones at hunting and gathering because it's awesome, but like, we, you can still have a house. Do you know what I mean? You can still wash your clothes. You can still have the internet. I, I believe this firmly. And so um, with Monk and Robot in particular, I, I really tried to paint a picture of this is a world that in which um, the environment is respected and understood and in which people try to work really hard to live in concert with it, not at a distance, but really in harmony with their environment because we're all just animals. Um, and it's it's good for us to recognize that. Uh, but in a way that is still high tech, they have robots, they have little computers in their pockets. There are satellites that do satellite things. Um, these things can coexist. And I, I obviously write fiction, uh, but I don't think that that's a stretch. I don't think that that's fantastical. I think that really truly is a world we can achieve if we just tweak our mindsets a little bit. Yeah. I think one of the things for me that's so interesting about writing about nature and technology coming together is that ecosystems are kind of what we've been talking about. An ecosystem is a community. It's a system where all of the pieces of it have to work together in order to maintain a balance. Um, and that for me is kind of what led me into writing a lot of characters who are robots um, and writing characters who aren't just regular old robots like, you know, the kind that have that are sort of bipedal and look like people. Um, but I have a lot of robots who have different kinds of morphologies. Um, I have a cyborg cow character in my latest novel um, who flies because like, why not? Um, and uh, she she's actually a pretty great character. Um, she's a scientist um, and a cow. And I also have a character, I mean, it happens. Um, and and there's also a character who is a sentient flying train. And I wanted to think about the ways that um, things that are very technological and industrial, like public transit, like a train that carries people around all over this planet, um, how that's also part of the ecosystem. And so for me, I felt like giving the train a point of view or giving the cow a point of view or giving a moose a point of view was a way of inviting readers to think about how natural systems and technological systems all are interconnected and that each piece of it has something to bring to a conversation or has something to bring into this massive system. Um, and so, again, being a writer, I was like, well, the best way to show that these pieces of the ecosystem have something to offer is just to give them a voice and let them say, like, actually, I really don't like living in this field. I want to go over there and I'd like to fly and I would also like to be a scientist. Please stop using me for milk, um, which is, you know, essentially what the cows have done um, in, the, in a kind of backstory. Um, or the trains are able to bargain for themselves. The trains are able to say, like, actually, this is the route that I want to take. And I know this because I, I talk to my riders, um, unlike, you know, a lot of public transit systems, which do not communicate with their riders about what would be nice, not that I'm calling out any particular transit systems. Um, but I think that the, the fiction, again, it allows us to tell these stories where the reader is invited to remember that, um, you know, 
nature and technology are just pieces of a larger system that we're also part of. Technology is inside of us. It's outside of us. As we move into the future, my hope is that we're going to start to see these things as being completely interconnected. Um, and we're not the only tool using animals either. Like, it's not like it's make this special, like we make technologies. It's like, come on. So do beavers. I mean, no, beavers are the best. <laughs> they are. I have what, like, what is your favorite animal made technology, non-human animal made technology? My favorite animal made technology, uh, that would be honeycomb. Good answer. Um, Good answer. It's, it's stunningly beautiful and it works so well. Right. Um, and it's. It's perfect. It's a perfect structure made by these these little these little buddies just this big. Yeah, sorry. I get, I really like bees. I do too. I was just showing somebody videos of bee waggle dances and I was like, "Look, did you know bees have language?" I was teaching my niece about bee language and she just did the waggle dance for the rest of the day, which is great. Look up bee waggle dance if you haven't seen it. I bet a lot of you already have. Um I wanted to um we have a few more minutes that we're going to talk to each other and then we're going to open it up to questions. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, well, do you want to talk about coziness or queerness or both? Both. Okay. Let's talk about cozy <laughs> queerness. Um, so I think, I think queerness is super cozy there. It that is. All right. So point made. take it away then. Tell us about cozy queerness and, and, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm okay. Coziness, right? Yeah. I think that, um, we could all do with being cozy. I think that we, and I think that that is, should not be a controversial thing to say. I think we, sh I think it needs to be, I think rest needs to be normalized. I think being comfy needs to be normalized. I think uh, just indulging in the beautiful sensory world around you is something nobody should feel guilty about ever. Um, and I think it's especially important in the here and now uh, when we are all, exhausted and angry and not sure what's going to happen not sure if it's ever going to get any better just you know being having little pieces of yourself carved away at every turn to be able to pick up be it a book a video game a movie whatever that feels like a great big hug and we are taught that this is something childish mm -hmm. um that's you're supposed to grow out of that. And that goes back to what we were talking about, about cynicism and sophistication. Um, with Monk and Robot in particular, I, I wrote it um, in response to something I noticed that was starting to happen in my social circles around 2017. You all might have been there at that point. Uh, living in this golden age of books, media, all of it that you can reach for anything, people started to go back to, and I'm sure a lot of you did this as well, uh, comfort shows from childhood or watching cartoons. Um, and both of those things are great. Those are legit things to do. Um, but nobody actually wanted to engage with new stuff, gritty stuff, because we were all so tired all the time. And I was like, can I write something that fills the Steven Universe rewatch or Great British Bake Off rewatch that is intended for an adult audience that will give you something nutritious as well that you're you you can find a book that meets you where you're at right now at the age you're at um without you know without having to be like well is it gonna end bad I should read the wiki first to make sure <laughs> that I'm emotionally up for this this evening um it, it goes back to comfort it goes back to a cup of tea 
Um, you just sometimes need a story that tells you not necessarily that everything's going to be okay, but that things are okay, that you are okay. Um, and I think that that is in in and of itself a type of rest. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, there's been, um, for those of you who are science fiction fans or pay attention, there has been a whole, I would call it a coziness revolution um, in sci-fi. And it's kind of, it is very much a resistance to dystopian writing. Um, and uh, Becky's work is often hailed as one of the great, uh, you know, aspects of this coziness revolution. Um, Malka Older has a new book out uh, called The Mimicking of Known Successes, which is also a very cozy uh, space opera. It's a kind of Sherlock Holmes mystery um, set uh, in an artificial environment that's been built around Jupiter. Um, people have set up these uh, rings around Jupiter that have trains running on them and built little habitats around the train tracks. Um, and it's just this, it's a very, like, dark things happen, but things are also quite warm and cozy. And, like, the characters like each other and they want to make things better. Um, and the idea of cozy fiction is not to avoid darkness or to, you know, run away from problems. It really is what what you're talking about, the idea that, you know, you're not going to have to brace yourself for some horrific, destructive uh, event at the end of the day. And I think, you know, um, a lot of Star Trek, like not classic Star Trek, but like next generation era Star Trek kind of participates in that same narrative structure where everyone basically wants to do something that's honorable and people are there for each other. And at the end of every episode, like people fix things, you know, like it's not it's not like Picard. If you're watching Picard, where everything is sort of broken and more broken. Um, I haven't watched this season. I hear it's getting better, but um, it's much more in the vein of, you know, a show where it, it's we're we're all there for each other. Uh, cozy sci-fi can be very simply summed up as stories that tell you that the future could be good. Yeah, that's it. That's all it is. And if you choose to pick up a story like that, you're choosing to engage with that idea for a while. For a little while, you you are believing that the future could be good and that the people in it will be kind. And I think that that's, um, that is the fuel we need if we're going to get through the here and now. Yeah. And I think um, a lot of what we've been discussing about focusing on small moments, focusing on rest, focusing on how people connect with each other, those are big parts of this subgenre. Um, and they're not necessarily focused on giant space battles. Often they feel a little bit like a drawing room melodrama, although there are often huge battles that are happening like in the background and we know about them and they're informing the events that are going on. Um, but that is part of admitting that the future might be okay, is acknowledging that actually these small moments in our lives really do matter. You know, the moment when you like win the big case or write the big book or like win the battle. Yeah, those are great moments. But actually, the stuff that you remember, like that's going to the beach with your friends when you just like said, fuck work for the day. We're going to get high on the beach. Like that's just as memorable and just as important. Um, and I think that this fits into um, our final thing that I want to talk about, which is ambient queerness in fiction. Um, which is also part of cozy fiction. And it's also part of imagining um, a more uh, balanced future. So 
let's talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For me, I mean, it's so very simple. Um, Coming at this as a queer woman, I I don't know why I would write a future that didn't have people like me and mine in it. Um, And I I think that... um, the, the, regardless of which series I'm talking about, because I've done this in all of these, having a future in which you don't have to come out. You don't have to struggle with um, knowing your place, finding your niche, understanding who you are, being accepted. People are never in danger for who they love, how they present, um, how they live their lives. Um, and even though bad things happen in my books, it's not going to be that and the reason for that is because i want um queer readers to be able to pick up my work and know that i am not going to hurt them in that way the the real world hurts us enough in that way um if we are actually going to believe that the future is good that obstacle as far as i'm concerned needs to be removed from it that doesn't mean we shouldn't tell stories about queer pain that doesn't mean we shouldn't tell stories about queer tragedy but in my work for my part um what I find to be the most powerful thing I can do when I am scared, when I am hurting, is to write a world in which that kind of hurt doesn't exist anymore. And it's it's not hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've both uh, both proven that in our in our stuff that you can just exist as you are, and it doesn't have to be as difficult as it is. Yeah, I think the thing that I really like about what I'm calling ambient queerness, which can mean having characters, having situations, it's not just about having queer characters, like characters who are gay or lesbian or bisexual. It's also about imagining different ways that people might have relationships with each other. They might be polyamorous. They might be asexual. They might have like one gender today and like six genders tomorrow. They might not even think of gender as an important binary. Like, if you have a character who's a train, like gender is not really a thing, right? Like the train is having a romance with a cat. So like, okay, there's your genders, cat and train. Um, And then of course, you know, now you know where the cat bus comes from in my neighbor Totoro. Um, That is, I seriously, I did that, okay? I did that for you. Um, but I, so it's about imagining like radical new forms of otherness that aren't demonized, that are just like fun and cozy. And and that's been baked into science fiction from the jump. If you are talking about a, a, a genre in which we have aliens, we have robots, we have sentient trains, uh, <laughs> and these are all par for the course, it just becomes ridiculous that you wouldn't have all these different structures of these social structures of gender, family, sex, all the rest of it, it, it it's part and parcel of the of this style of storytelling. Uh, and so it lends itself very naturally to just being a place where you can explore all these things and make it as easy as pie. Um, and that's one of the things I love about it so much. Yeah. Okay, so on that note, now we've gotten cozy, we've gotten queer, we've embraced nature Please, you can ask questions. Did we you want to? Um, yeah, we have a question from the live stream here. A topical question from Leon um, Stenutz. Um, what What can we all be doing to build emotionally, morally, and spiritually intelligent artificial intelligence? Well, you could start 
paying all of those raters and people who are helping to do quality assurance on your large language models. You could start hiring them as full-time staff and giving them healthcare benefits. Um, you could start treating, you know, the workers who are designing all of these systems with integrity and honor and start worrying about the actual problems like, you know, uh, racism and sexism that are built into a lot of these models. I mean, I think there's a lot of actually super easy answers to that question. And we keep kind of knocking ourselves over the head saying like, wait, but we have to do something to the code. And it's like, it's not the code, buddy. It's the human beings who are writing the code. Those are the people that you need to treat with integrity. Those are the people who need to be lifted up. And then, you know, we'll worry about the other stuff. Tools will always reflect the people who make them is what it comes down to. And if those people are exhausted and poorly treated, uh, and if the people overseeing those people are, how to put this? Fascists? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're going to end up with racist robots. Like, that's just what's going to happen. So I, I completely agree. Start with the people. Amen. Uh, (laughs) I'm curious what you each think about villains. Um, I was struck. I loved Wayfarers, all the books. Thank you so much. Um, And I was struck at the absence of the here is an evildoer who has just wants to rule the universe for no discernible reason (laughs) other than their evilness. Um, The total absence of that kind of villain so I sort of wonder, how do you guys think about villains and where they fit into the kinds of stories you want to tell? Uh, I don't know any villains personally, so therefore I find it very hard to write about them. Uh, <laughs> and with with Wayfarers in particular, um, I wanted to tell a story about ordinary people. I wanted to tell a story about the everyman um, that just happened to live in a you know, fantastic galactic future. Uh, And since I don't know any villains, I figured most people don't, uh, and that it would be a more realistic, believable story, even though you are talking about, you know, punching wormholes and, you know, a giant uh, otter-looking dudes and, you know, all the rest of it. If you just have people doing their best, because that's, generally speaking, the sorts of people that we all know. if I ever decide to write a big let's go do drugs and ride sandworms sort of space opera, maybe I'll change my tune on that. Um, but for 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 now, at least, uh, I prefer keeping my stories villain-free. I love that answer that it's just this practical thing of like, who knows a villain? You know, like that's not, it's not realistic. Mustaches aren't even really that in fashion anymore. It's very difficult. To be, and our trains are a mess. You can't tie anybody to the tracks these days. I know. That's actually a yeah, huge disappointment. I, I would add to that. Um, I, I've actually been called out a few times where people will say, like, you know, I just feel like the villains in your books are just not filled in enough. Um, you know, I want to know more about the villain. Um, and I, I have to say that I just do not give a shit about how bad people justify what they're doing to themselves. Like, what the hell difference does it make? Okay, they're telling themselves. People always like to say in the fiction community, like, 
but villains always tell themselves that they're doing the right thing. I'm like, again, do not care. I don't know. What are they telling themselves? I just don't know. It's not worth my time. I think what is important is to understand what people are doing that is destructive. So if someone in a position of power is doing destructive things, yeah, we need to know what they're doing. We need to know how to push back against them. We need to understand patterns in like how you can defeat someone who's doing something destructive using the law or using, you know, physical resistance or using psychological techniques, whatever you're going to use to defeat your bad guy. But I prefer to have a villain if I have a villain or if I have a bad guy to just be like, yeah, they're over there doing terrible things. Let's focus on how we're stopping them um, and not worry about whether they had a sad childhood or whether they're doing this out of a sense of vulnerability. Who cares? You know what? We all have a sense of vulnerability. Lots of us had shitty childhoods. We didn't grow up to like you know, oppress a bunch of workers and underpay them. Like, it's just not, you know, we didn't all go there. So, yeah. Sorry about that. I just don't, I don't care about villains. <laughs> hi. Um, hi. Um, one thing that I think about when I think about resistance sometimes is parody and like commentary through parody. Uh, do you think there's a place for that in your idea of how to resist dystopia? And do you think maybe there's parody that you could find in, in the works that you've brought into the world? At 100%. Uh, the more you can laugh at the things that scare you and hurt you, the more you rob them of their power. Um, I think that parody is a, is a very particular art form that takes a very special skill set in order to pull it off. It's not something I have brought into my work because I don't have access to that toolbox. Um, but I think that yeah, absolutely. Like parody, satire, all of it. Um, these are extremely effective tools uh, in the 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 grand fictional ecosystem. And yes, they absolutely have a place in this. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I especially like. I mean, I actually feel like you you have a lot of wholesome humor in your books, and I really like that. I feel like we're having a moment in culture right now where like wholesome humor is a big thing like i feel like dad jokes are the sort of utopian pushback against like nasty satire and um i'm just yeah so i'm i'm happy to live in a world of of dad jokes <laughs> um how did in your opinion how did we get here like why aren't we sitting here at a, at a at an event that's saying resisting you know kind of utopia like the oh, dominant idea is utopian and we're like the kind of critics that are trying to like poke holes at it. Or why isn't this kind of the kind of the 50-50 split? You know, how do we tip it towards, you know, utopia? I mean, is it in human nature? Is it our era that we just happen to be cynical now, but, you know, 50 years from now it won't be that or 50 years ago it was different? Just curious, like, how did we get here? And that's kind of a, with an insight to how do we get out of it. I think um, my answer to that is is perhaps what it isn't is my best answer to that. It's not human nature. And I, I, I firmly believe that. Um, all you have to do is study the history of human civilization, of different cultures around the world, of places that do not exist within um, Western colonialism, Western capitalism, and you will find cultures in which people 
loved each other. I don't know how else to put that. People where people cared about each other more than about things and about war and about all the other things we find ourselves mired in. I really believe that it is um, just the era we are in. I think that um, I. <laughs> I don't like being here any more than I think um, a lot of us do. But no, I think that humans are inherently good. I, I, and maybe that's uh, naive of me, but I really do believe that. I believe that humans are inherently good. We want to help. We want to uh, hold each other up. And what we're denied is the the time and the freedom to do that. And we've been denied that a very long time. And it's it's a death by a thousand cuts, you know. Um, and so I think as to how we get out of it, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> if anybody knows, please speak up. Um, but how did we get here? I think by not by believing that it won't be different, by constantly believing that this is all there is, by believing that it is human nature, by believing that the end will always be grim. That is how we got here. That's how we'll stay here. But if we push those boundaries, be it through reading science fiction, be it through, I don't know, learning a different language, going, you know, talking to somebody from a different place, picking up a book on literally any topic you don't know about, it opens your mind to new avenues. And the more we just continually reinforce this idea of it does not have to be like this, that's how we get out, I think. Or yeah. maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I would, yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, <laughs> um, I would just add that uh, I think we are also, in a sense, trying to resist utopia here, too, because I think we're both trying to push back against this idea of a binary, like that is either perfect or horrible and that there's some place in the middle. And I think that place in the middle is the solution and where and what it feels like is acknowledging that we're going to screw up over and over again and forgiving ourselves. I think that's one of our big problems as a species is that when we mess up, especially in the West, we feel like, okay, well, I'm just a bad person and everything is broken and it will always be broken and it can't be fixed. And so one of the things that I really strive for in my fiction and my storytelling and in my work outside that is to remind people that like we can fix stuff like even if it's incredibly broken incredibly screwed up there's always a way to fix it no we're not going to fix it all at once it's not going to happen overnight we do need these long time spans but every little bit helps and so i'd love to see a a posture of let's get it done let's fix it together instead of let's figure out who screwed this up who did it? Who was the bad guy? All right, send him to jail. Send her to jail. And it's like, what if we just said, all right, everybody chill out, pick up a tool, whatever tool, and or just take a nap. <laughs> you know, that's okay, too. Um, and let's just do what we can. I think the problem with utopia is that it it um, lends itself to the idea that there will ever be a one-size-fits-all yes. fix oh my gosh. for everything. Uh and there won't be. The work will never, ever, ever be done. We we will constantly be fixing things because there's no escaping entropy. Everything's going to break. And you just have to accept that there will never be an end, right? You just have to keep going. And I think that this idea that we'll just figure it all out one day, we won't. 
we're going to keep keep disagreeing too. That's the thing. And like, you know, it's very common to say like, you know, one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. And that's going to continue being the case. And so as we're working toward having a world where, you know, things are better and by better, I just mean like, you know, everybody has food, (laughs) like everybody has a place to live. Everybody is protected from disaster. Um, you know, we are going to keep having those conflicts and it's going to be ugly and people are going to be sad. And, you know, we're never going to reach a point. We're animals, right? We're, we're always going to have suffering, but we can create a world where that suffering is eased because we have a community that's there for us. And I think that's really the goal. I think we have time for one more question. Um, yeah. Oh, you've been waiting for ages. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you're familiar with the work of Monica Bielskaya. She champions the idea of protopianism, which is really like, what can we do as like through design fiction and painting a picture of a positive future through video games, through comic books? Like, what can we all do together to help paint this more positive future as opposed to either utopia or dystopia, right? It's this middle ground kind of saying, hey, protopia, which is just positive future. Maybe we could comment a little bit on that. Just write books. Yeah, sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Write good books, make good video games, make the thing you want to make, and don't feel like it has to fulfill some big lofty goal. Just write a story for the sake of writing a story because stories are fun. And having fun is resistance. Having fun is rest. Having fun in the midst of everything falling apart around you is, I think, one of the most powerful ways to fight back. So just Make stuff, make good stuff and share it with other people. Yeah, have fun, take a nap, share some tea with a friend. Remember, you know, you could be changing the future by being there for a friend. You have no idea what the knock-on effects are going to be from that, you know? It's it's actually a big part of building a better world. So, yeah, and and also buy some drinks and support Support your local institution. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I found myself thinking a great deal about this talk since we recorded it and highly recommend reading Becky and Annalie's books if you're looking for more. This episode affected you like it did us. Please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience. And so anytime you rate or share the podcast or tell a friend about an episode you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to watch the full video of Becky Chambers and Annalie Newitt's talk, learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, or become a Long Now member, go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to next time. Until then, in the words of Anna Lee, take a nap and share some tea with a friend. <laughs>